This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, March 27, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. Bills to raise revenue are supposed to start in the U.S. House, but the Affordable Care Act, upon arrival in the Senate, was replaced in its entirety with a substantially different bill. What are the constitutional implications? We'll find out in the D.C. Circuit Court soon. Tim Sandifer with Pacific Legal Foundation will argue the case. He provides a preview. This case challenges the constitutionality of Obamacare on the grounds that if it is a tax, as the Supreme Court said it was, what, a year and a half ago now, uh, two years ago, that it is still unconstitutional because the Constitution requires that taxes originate in the House of Representatives. But the bill that became Obamacare originated in the Senate. Okay, That seems simple enough, but the reason that Obamacare is a tax is because the Supreme Court said it was a tax, which was after the piece of legislation had been passed. Does that complicate what you're saying? Not really, because what we're saying is we'll put aside any question of whether the Supreme Court was right in that earlier decision. We'll just assume that it's a tax and that it was always meant to be a tax. If so, then it's unconstitutional. So it, we don't have to second guess the earlier decision by the by the Supreme Court. We just have to take them at their word and say even on those grounds, it, it violates the constitutional requirements. Okay. So what happens uh, now? Well, the, the case will be argued in front of the D.C. Circuit on May 8th. We were dismissed from the trial court on various grounds. You said that uh, that it sounded so simple, but nothing is ever so simple that lawyers can't complicate it. And the, the one of the arguments that the court of that the trial court found to dismiss our lawsuit was that even if Obamacare is a tax, it's not, quote, a bill for raising revenue, end quote, which is what the Constitution actually says. It says all bills for raising revenue must originate in the House, but the Senate can amend such bills as any other kind of legislation. So the trial judge said, well, the individual mandate is not a bill for raising revenue, even if it's a tax. Now, you might think, what is the difference between a tax and a bill for raising revenue? And actually, there are some cases that do distinguish between the two, and that is there are certain kinds of things that look like taxes that the courts have said are actually penalties. So there are cases, for instance, remember the Wickard versus Filburn, the, the Supreme Court case about how you can't grow more wheat than the federal government says you can. That was backed up by a monetary penalty. And that was challenged in court on the grounds that it was an illegal tax. And the court said, no, it's really just a penalty for growing too much wheat. And therefore, it's, it doesn't need to satisfy the procedural rules for taxes. Well, the one thing we know about the Obamacare individual mandate is it's not a penalty. That's what the Supreme Court said over and over again. It said it's not a penalty. So if it's not a penalty, it shouldn't be able to escape the origination clause's requirements on the penalty excuse. Arguments that were made just a few years ago on the uh, NFIB v. Sebelius case were sort of laughed at initially yeah, uh, in, in, I remember that. in the academy. Uh, and I think this has probably gotten some similar treatment at least early on. Where, Actually, does, it, where does it stand now? Yeah. At first, it was basically ignored, but there were some uh, legal commentators um, James Toronto, The Wall Street Journal, and, and Jack Balkan, who said, well, you know, although, although they personally didn't buy it, they were not willing to say that the court wouldn't go this direction because they had, you know, some people had said that the origination clause, I mean, that the, the commerce clause argument had no chance of winning and then it did win. So we have not seen the kind of uh, scoffing that some of the, ori the uh, original 
pioneers in the Obamacare litigation got two years ago. But there, it is an uphill battle. And we recognize that it was an uphill battle when we started this case years ago. And it's always an uphill battle when challenging the government in court. And so and, – and there's the problem that there's very little precedent on the origination clause. Only three or four cases. And there's one case – the most recent one was in the 1990s when the Supreme Court said that it would enforce the origination clause. And it, then it failed to do so in that case because it said, well, this isn't really a tax. This is a penalty, which is the opposite of our case. There are many states that have similar origination requirements when it comes to uh, legislation that raises revenue. And it, from an economic public choice perspective, those make a lot of sense. That is a bill that raises revenue uh, should sort of stand alone. That's right and should be kept in the hands of those representatives who are closest to the people. That was the thought of the origination clause when it was written in the 1780s was that we want – we don't want the taxing power which is the most dangerous power that the British had, had used to abuse the colonists, that the founding fathers were knew could be abused. They didn't want it to be in the hands of an aristocracy and they thought that the Senate was a little bit more aristocratic than the House. So they chose to put that power primarily in the hands of the only branch of the federal government that was originally uh, answerable directly to the voters, the House of Representatives elected every two years by, by local di districts and not by the state as a whole. And therefore, to try and keep that taxing power close to the vest. And, what, and the reason why was exactly for a case like this, precisely for an instant, instance like this, where you have a legislation being rammed through Congress at the last possible minute in middle of the night on Christmas Eve, the, the, the Obamacare law was originally passed, and with no serious national debate. So that was the reason why the origination clause was written, to prevent this sort of undemocratic procedure from taking control and exploiting the taxing power for reasons that the people don't support. And again, it's always worth emphasizing a majority of the American people have never supported Obamacare. They do not support it now. They never have supported it. They voted for the candidate who promised he was opposed to the individual mandate. And so every step of the way, this statute has been imposed in violation of the will of the people. And the origination clause, had it been followed or other parts of the Constitution, had they been followed, would have prevented that from happening. How likely is it that there will be some sort of parsing of the phrase bill to raise revenue? I think it's very likely. I think that the, uh, the panel that we have is all uh, Democrat appointees. Maybe that means that they'll be more skeptical of our arguments. I think our arguments stand up to that kind of skepticism, but it will require a careful analysis of the text and of the meaning of what the founders meant when they wrote this out. Now, like I said, there's been relatively little case law on this issue. And there's really not much in the history of the writing of the Constitution on this issue. Um, it's just something that Congress has usually enforced on its own. But as I said, in the 1990s, the Supreme Court said it will enforce this clause. And so if there's ever been a case when the origination clause should be enforced, it's this one. What happened in this case was the Senate took a bill that the House had passed that was six pages long that was on a completely unrelated subject and it quote, amended, end quote, that bill by striking out its entire text and replacing it with the 2,000-page behemoth that is Obamacare. And they called it macaroni. And that's not what the Constitution 
contemplated when it said that the, the bills for raising revenue originate in the House. If, if that satisfies the origination clause, then the origination clause is simply meaningless. And the time has come for us to stop endorsing interpretations of the Constitution that render its text meaningless. We've done that too much. In essence, just as long as the bill number doesn't change, it's fine. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and this is this shell bill or gut and amend. Uh, that's the, what the terms that are used for it sometimes. It, it does occur at the state level, especially all the time, all the time. But the Supreme Court has never blessed it. In fact, the only time that the Supreme Court has ever talked about this issue was in a case called Flint versus Stone Tracy Company. And in that case, the court said that Senate amendments to House-created revenue bills must be germane to the subject of the original bill, which whatever that means does mean that it can't be scoop out all the guts and replace it completely. That, we know, is off the table. Tim Sandifer is a principal attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Read more on the troubled constitutional record of the Affordable Care Act at our website, cato.org.